uh, as it happens, Andy, I was actually working on a totally different book at the time. And I put that aside, did some preliminary research to see whether there's any science out there in this, um, and then wrote an entirely new book proposal, which I sent up to my very surprised editor who thought I was working on an entirely different book. Um, and so, so that's how I got into it. On the show today, I'm pleased to have best-selling author and speaker Daniel Pink. He's here to talk about his latest bestseller, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Run Your Life Podcast with host Andy Vasily. So I must admit that connecting with Daniel Pink has always been a long-time wish of mine. I've followed his work for years and have read all of his books, which have helped to truly transform my own work in education and the work that I do as a performance coach. So we connected on Zoom. I was in Hiroshima, Japan. He was at his home, I think, in Washington. And when we started our call, we had an initial chat kind of getting to know one another, and then we're ready to jump into the conversation about early days in his life, the type of learner he was, and ultimately his trajectory toward becoming a world-renowned author and speaker. Daniel's books have sold millions of copies worldwide and have been translated into 42 different languages. As well, he's won multiple awards for his writing. It was a genuine honor to have Daniel on my podcast, and I hope that wherever you are, you find value in our discussion today. So let's jump right into the conversation now with Daniel talking about who he is and the work he does. So Daniel, it's great to have you on the show. I know we've been trying to, you've been so busy and uh, so gracious with giving me this opportunity to to speak to you, but uh, I'm really glad we could nail this interview down. I'm actually in Hiroshima, Japan right now. We just talked about your experience in Japan uh, way back in the 90s, but um, in advance to our conversation, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for having me, Eddie. It's good to be with you. So most of the listeners will know your work for sure, but just for those that might not be as familiar, can you share who you are and the work that you're most known for? I'm a writer. I'm based in Washington, D.C. Uh, for the last 20 years, I've written books. And uh, the books include books like In Order, Free Agent Nation, which is about the rise of people working for themselves. A Whole New Mind, which is about the shift in skills that are necessary in the world of work. The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, which is the first business book in the Japanese comic format of manga, uh, popular down where you where where you are, uh, over where you are, uh, and let's see what else there was. A book called Drive about the science of motivation. A book called To Sell Is Human about the science of influence and persuasion. A book called When about the science of timing, and the latest book is The Power of Regret about the transformative powers of our most misunderstood emotion. Now, to set the frame for the next part of the conversation, I do need to provide a bit of background. As I prepared for this episode, I read Daniel's latest bestseller, The Power of Regret. As well, I revisited a number of his older books. And while researching, I came across a little-known fact that Daniel had actually spent almost a year in Tokyo, Japan, back in the early 1990s studying the Japanese manga industry. So some of you might have known this, but you know I thought I knew everything about Daniel Pink, so it came as a complete surprise that he actually spent time in Japan doing this type of work. 
And I know that there were many things that Daniel enjoyed about Japanese culture. And myself, having lived there with my wife Neela and our two boys for 10 years, Daniel and I had this common connection of、uh, really loving Japan and Japanese culture and the country itself. As luck and timing would have it, my family and I are actually in Hiroshima, Japan right now for the winter holidays. So I decided to devote the first part of our conversation chatting about the Japanese manga style book Daniel wrote after his time in Japan. The book is called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. Let's pick up on this part of the conversation so you can hear Daniel sharing what we can all learn from Johnny Bunko's story. Here we go. And, you know, when I was in,、uh, researching for this interview, and, and I know a lot about your work, and, and Drive absolutely changed my teaching career、uh, oh, in terms of, you know,、uh, the importance of agency and autonomy and, and all of those things that you, you talked about in the book. But, Johnny Bunko, I had no idea that you had lived in Japan. So, through the research, I, I learned this story of you being in Japan. But, Yeah, we, we had a, we, we had a,、uh, we, I did a fellowship. My family and I went out there、uh, when our kids were little,、um, did a fellowship in Japan for a few months and、um, where I studied the, the manga industry in Japan,、uh, which is a fascinating pursuit. I'd always been,、um, always been surprised by why comics were not more widely used here in the United States.、Um, in Japan, they're used for a whole variety of genres. And I think it's a very powerful medium. Um, and so I ended up being so moved by that experience that I decided to do a manga of my own. So, what can you, know, what can you share with the audience about the, the key life lessons that we can all learn from Johnny Bunko's story that,、oh、still, that still apply in 2023? Absolutely, they still apply. They are timeless <laughs> lessons that Johnny teaches us in that long forgotten book. Um, um, the idea, this, this is a, it was a story of this, this guy who is an accountant and he is. Visited、um, by a spirit of, of sorts, sort of a mystical creature named Diana,、yeah. who appears when he snaps open these magic chopsticks.、Um, and, um, you'll, um, and you'll see in the book, we actually have、uh, Japanese sound effects in, 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 in kanji and katakana.、Um, oh, nice. To, 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 you know, so, so when the chopstick is break, the, the sound is paka.、Nice. Um, and so you see that, you see that in,、um, You see that in the books.、Uh, Johnny teaches that、uh, it's important to do things for fundamental reasons rather than instrumental reasons, that you, like careers or anything, you can't plan out in meticulous detail. What you have to do is you have to do things for the right reasons, do things for their intrinsic value, and be opportunistic and open about the next step.、Um, he、uh, talks about the importance of、uh, actually spending more time cultivating your strengths and less time trying to repair your weaknesses.、Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of things, like, you know, most things we're not good at. So it's important to find the things that you are good at, the things that make you you, and really、mm -hmm. deepen those.、Uh, he talks about、um, the, 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 the importance of persistence over talent,、uh, you know, an enduring lesson. And、uh, the importance of、um, you know, leaving an imprint. So,、uh, six great lessons for career and life from the adventures of Johnny Bunko. Nice. And that idea of、um, strengths, not weaknesses, really ties into Martin Seligman's work around positive psychology and being strengths focused, right? There's a lot of, of that. So, there's a very, you know, this is, the, <laughs> you know, that book came out. That book came out. That book came out like 14 years ago, something like that.、Um, and at the time, that was a more novel、um, argument.、Uh, I, think it's pretty, I think it's pretty well known now about the, the, importance, of, the, the, the importance of strengths.、Um, and and、um, you know, I, think it's, I think it's an important assessment that all of us make. It's something that I've done myself in saying, you know, asking yourself the hard question of like, what am I not good at?、Mm -hmm. um, and really being explicit about that. And Not doing those things. So, for instance, I'm not good at organizing stuff. So, you know, I'm not, my, my wife says, I, you know, the only thing you can run is your mouth. You know, I couldn't organize a one car parade.、Yeah. So, 
I shouldn't be in jobs where I have to do that because right. I will be a failure. Doubling down on your strengths. Yeah. yeah. Tripling down. Quadrupling down. down. Yeah. In the next part of the conversation, we talk about early days in Daniel's life and how the trajectory of his own learning was shaped by spending lots of time in his community library in Columbus, Ohio. We discuss what he learned about himself during this time, having spent so many days and months and years in the library, but also we take a dive into the International Baccalaureate School System and the importance of agency, autonomy, and motivation in learning. Uh, another little-known fact is that Daniel and his wife had sent their three kids to uh, an IB school, private IB school in America, a bilingual IB school. So he's very familiar with the IB system and uh, really supports and promotes the work that they do. So let's jump into this part of the discussion now. Yeah, and we talked a bit about, you know, your experience with the IB world uh, in terms yeah. of your kids being educated at IB schools. And, you know, yeah. when I think of you as a young kid and learning your story about being connected to the library, having such an amazing library at your fingertips, literally, you could go there every day and read. Yeah. I think of you and this idea of awe and wonder and inquiry and curiosity, all things that the IB really uh, emphasizes. Yeah. But how do you think those... Uh, early experiences in the library really shaped the trajectory of who you are in your career and the work that you do to serve the world. Um, well, I mean, I, I appreciate you're saying that. I grew up in central Ohio, which has a very, very good library system, particularly when I was growing up. And, you know, there wasn't a lot to do. And I wanted to get out of my parents' house. And that was a place that had it. And in the summers, it also had air conditioning. So, um, so, so, you know, you, we can, we can make it more exalted and talk about it as a source of awe and wonder. And yes, it was, but it was also a source of escape. Mm -hmm. And, um, and for me, that ability to escape, the ability to, the ability to go there by myself and do my own thing and be left alone was empowering. And so I learned a lot, but I also began to develop some degree of agency um, perhaps, 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 I don't know, a little earlier than some people. Did you know it at the time or did, was it just a natural part of your kind of learning journey? Did I know what at the time? That, that you were, uh, that you had this sense of agency. Was it something that was uh, just oh, happening? Oh, I see. Uh, I, I don't think I was that, um, I don't think so as a kid. I didn't mm -hmm. think I had that, that level of that that level of awareness is a fascinating question though Andy, Andy because i do think that there are for kids especially there are ways that kids feel in certain contexts that they don't feel in other contexts and mm. some of that feeling in this case might have been the feeling of agency even if i didn't have the you know the metacognitive awareness of it you yeah. know um, and, and I think we see that a lot in it's an, it's an interesting point. I think we see that a lot. One of the things that bugs me, and there are many things that bug me, is when we talk about when people talk about teenagers, especially not being motivated. Um, you know, and I, I always try to push back on that by saying, you know, uh, you, uh, look at them in on on in sports, look at them in theater, look at them in school newspapers or an orchestra or band. They are very motivated. They are willing to work. They are willing to practice. What is it about those domains that brings out that motivation? And I think that, you know, and why is um, much of the rest of formal education not like that? Now, again, I do think, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm talking my own, talking about, you know, saying investing, I'm talking my own book here because my wife and I sent our kids you know, to 13 years of international school, a bilingual, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, IB school. So mm -hmm. obviously have a lot invested in that, but, um, but I do think that the IB gives that greater sense of agency, greater sense of autonomy, uh, a premium on inquiry, 
um, a, a premium on um, on uh, certainly in the in the diploma program, the IB diploma program, on writing across disciplines, which I think is incredibly important. On doing original research, on coming up with your own ideas, uh, even you know, in I think the IB program, and I think this is where the world is going to go now. Um, being able to present your ideas and your arguments not only in written form but orally. Um, so, uh, and I see the fruits of with my own kids, our own kids. I see the fruits of an IB education all the time, honestly, all the time. Yeah, that's what they're really emphasizing now is this idea of multiple means of expression and multiple means yeah. of representation when they're doing their work. So they not only have inquiry and agency, but the very best teachers are able to create the conditions in the classroom that allow the kids multiple means to express what they have come to understand about the world, about themselves, about their place in it. And those are the transdisciplinary themes that fit so well with the the IB, who we are, where we are in place and time, all those big ideas. And absolutely, um, they're also making a, a shift more towards kids being uh, assessment capable, you know, and, and this idea of self-adjusting, being a self-adjusting learner. And that takes a lot of skill for teachers to let go of that absolutely. control to build absolutely. the student's competence to self-adjust, right? Absolutely. It's a great it's a great point. It's very hard to do, but it's ultimately what all of us have to do in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're all doing that kind of self-adjusting in the way that we learn out there in the world. And so equipping people earlier rather than later is going to do them a great service. For sure. So as many of you know, Daniel Pink is a world-class writer. But aside from this, he actually began his career, amazingly, working as a speechwriter for then-American Vice President Al Gore. As an accomplished speechwriter turned best-selling award-winning author, I couldn't help but think about Daniel as a young child and the type of learner that he was. So I decided to ask him to describe himself as a learner, as a student in elementary school, and the way he learned best. I also asked him to reflect back on his own life, and in knowing what he knows now, based on all of his research and the books he's written and the work he does, what it was he wished he would have learned from his parents early on that would have helped him to better navigate the obstacles that life would one day throw at him. As well, I asked Daniel if there was anything else he wished he might have taught his own children earlier on in their lives. Listen now to what Daniel had to say about that. I was wondering this uh, about you and if we could be a fly on your classroom wall, let's say in grade four or five, what kind of student would we have seen with you? Yeah, very dutiful. Um, probably not that creative, probably not that curious and creative. Uh, I feel like the outlet for the creativity, creativity and curiosity was actually in elementary school, not so bad. Um, but I think that, um, that the outlets for the creativity and, and curiosity, um, were often outside of the classroom in other right. kinds of things that I was doing uh, rather than in the classroom. In the classroom, listen, like, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that when I went to school in Ohio in the 1970s, it wasn't that hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't that, it wasn't an IB education. It, yeah. it was like, get the right answer on the test, give the authority figure the answer that he or she usually a she wanted do it neatly and on time and you got an a yeah. uh, so it was really it was really about you know um being compliant more than anything else what was that first time that you can recall maybe not first time but maybe it was a series of moments that allowed you to kind of break the mold of uh traditional learning and kind of move into your areas of interest and passion 
does one moment or a series of moments come to mind or just slowly happen over time? I don't know. I mean, there is a, there is a, there, I mean, I do remember having a click in my brain moment uh, when I was a, let me think here. Yeah. I must've been a, was I must've been a freshman in high school. I think so. And, um, and, you know, because I was a pretty good English student, I think that my English teacher said to the newspaper advisor, hey, this kid is a pretty good student. Maybe he wants to work on the newspaper. And so they approached me. And at the time, I think it was the kind of thing where it's like, oh, you had to be a sophomore mm. to work on the newspaper. You know, <laughs> one of those kinds of ridiculous things that seem like, you know, daunting. Um, and um, and and I said, OK. And so she they assigned me the story as a freshman to write about the girls softball team. Okay. So the lowest story on the totem pole there. And I remember working on that story and this is where the click came in, where it's like, it occurred to me, it's like, wait a second, there isn't a right answer to this. Wait a second. Other people are going to read this. It better be right. And it better be good. And I felt my mind clicking in a way that it did in, in other realms. And so I think that there might be something, yeah. there might be something, there might be something like that. Early but, passion. But in general, in general, my K to 12 education, I mean, I went to, you know, I went to like a, a perfectly good public school in, in central Ohio. It wasn't, it wasn't a school where that was, you know, massively under-resourced. It wasn't a school that was dangerous or anything like that. It was, you know, it was. But it it just wasn't, you know, partly because of the times mm. and perhaps a little bit because of the place. It just wasn't super rigorous or creative. It right. was about dutifulness. Yeah. And rules following rules. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if we were to kind of think about present day and, and you were to reflect on your life's body of work and all of your learning over the years and the books you've written and the research that you've done and knowing what you know now and the strategies that you've shared in you know all of your books to support mental and emotional well-being and productivity so this is a two-part you can answer either question okay or take a pass but it's that can idea i answer of, both you can answer both um if you were to think about yourself as a young person yeah. um what is it that you wish you would have heard from your parents or what lessons do you think they might have taught uh they might have taught you that would help you to better navigate the world that you would one day face. So that's the, the first possible question based on what you know now, or if you could go back to, I know your kids aren't, you know, very old, but if you could go back to when your kids were young, is there anything you wish you would have taught them when they were young to help them kind of better navigate the world? So either from a, you know, parent or a child perspective, like what, what would you, have yeah. wanted to hurt as a child or wish you would have taught your own kids. Yeah. On the first one, I think that what really would have helped me would be, um, I mean, to some extent, my parents basically left my brother and sister and me alone. They didn't really care that deeply. Um, and I think that's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's probably a good thing. Cause I think it, 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 it led to some degree of, um, I think that some degree of, of agency, uh, what I didn't hear was, um, uh, focus on learning for learning's sake. Uh, what I didn't hear was uh, ask a lot of questions. Uh, and what I didn't hear was work extremely hard. Mm. Um, you know, I think that that's not a knock on my parents. It is, you know, in some ways, the fact that I was enmeshed in a system where, as we were talking about before, it was about compliance. It was about, you don't ask questions, you put down the freaking right answer. Yeah, you know, it, it, you know, it's like you don't care about learning; you care about the grade, you know, and and um and you're actually not working hard for your own sake. You try to do, you basically are. Uh, you it's an optimization problem where you're trying to do the minimum amount of work necessary to get the best grade. Mm -hmm. So, and I and that's and all those things are <laughs> antithetical to deep learning and, and curiosity. Um. Um, as for as for my own kids, um, you know, I, I think that they, you know, I tried to transmit some of the 
my wife and I tried to transmit some of the lessons that we wish we had learned. Certainly, I think that that's what I think that's part of what parents do. Um, you know, my kids are my kids are still you know youngish. I mean, they're not children, but they're you know in their early twenties, and for them, um, I guess the one thing is um, is. And I think they understand this, and and you know I think they came to it, and I'm not even sure it's a lesson for younger kids, but you know maybe just the degree that there's a there's there's a large degree of randomness in the world. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, why do some people get ahead and other people don't? Some of it is luck. Mm-hmm. Um, why do things turn out one way rather than another way? And a lot of it is circumstance, randomness, luck, um, and um, I, I might have, but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a lesson you want to <laughs> deliver to a five-year-old saying the universe is random. You have very little control over what, ha- you know, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think there's that idea of just, you know, some of those life lessons, um, you know, maybe I think about my own kids, 17 and 19 and, and what I've come to learn over the last, you know, every year I'm trying to learn, but just trying to share some of these ideas. And a lot of the ideas I now share with them revolve around this idea of um, peak performance and really knowing our own values and 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 trying to apply these strategies despite uncertainty, you know, yeah. and I think that's what I've, I've tried to to do with them and and I'm sure in your work as you as you said you would have always transmitted a lot of the, those ideas to the kids uh, to your kids early on right but it's just a interesting thing to think about and so we are now going to take a dive into the power of regret And in this part of the conversation, Daniel talks about the main theme of the book and what he learned through months of research and what readers can expect from reading The Power of Regret. As well, he shares what sparked his desire to write the book in the first place. So now let's hear what he has to say. If we were to now jump into, you know, so I have your your book in my hand right here. I was able to get a copy. Uh, I live in Saudi Arabia. I was able to to get a copy, and wow. I've, I've read it uh, a number of times. And and this is what I really want to talk about. Uh, it's your latest bestseller, and it's broken into three parts: uh, regret reclaimed, which is four chapters; uh, part two, regret revealed. Uh, which is seven chapters. And the third part is regret remade, which is three chapters. So what is it that you want the listeners to most know about this book? You know, obviously we can't talk about the entire book, but what is it that you want them to most know about the book just to set the context for this part of the conversation? Well, the, the book is about this emotion of regret, this emotion that makes us feel bad when we look backward and, and say, oh, if only I had done that, if only I hadn't done that. If only I had done that differently. And uh, it's an emotion we don't like because it makes us feel bad. Uh, and yet, if you look at 60, 50, 60 years of research, what it tells us is that it's one of the most common emotions that we have. And that uh, if we treat it right, it's actually one of the most useful emotions that we have. So what I'm trying to do, you know, you mentioned the, the title of that first section, which is regret reclaim, is reclaim the, um, this emotion of regret, not as something that we should avoid, never mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, but something that we should use and harness as a force for good and progress in our lives. And the World Regret Study, can you give people some background into that? And that helped you really uh, plant the seeds for sure. a lot of the ideas. So, 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 one, so, so the book is built on on three research foundations. One of them is this body of existing scientific research in fields like cognitive science, social psychology, developmental psychology, neuroscience, uh, because you know scientists have studied this emotion for. 50 years. So that's one of them. Uh, I also did a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, what I call the American Regret Project, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes on regret ever conducted. And then to your question, Andy, I also did this other project called the World Regret Survey, where I just put up a website and invited people around the world 
to submit one of their big regrets. And we now have a database of, I think we're up to 24,000 regrets from people mm-hmm. in 109 countries. It's pretty spectacular. And that's great because those those regrets are sprinkled throughout the book. And and you know, I'm looking at one right now is I regret not learning more sooner about racism, female 78, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. So these yeah. regrets are sprinkled throughout the yeah. book and they're great. And I've listened to the audio book as well. And, and we have uh, actors reading those. Yeah. It, yeah. And and it it adds a it adds a lot of value having those regrets sprinkled throughout because as I read the book, you know, you can't help but think about your own regrets. Sure. And when you're listening to these different voices express these regrets, you're you're connecting on an emotional level. And it's that idea of uh, regret is the common human experience that bonds us all. And that's the yep. feeling that I got as I read the book and listened to the book and then listened to the book and had it in my hand as I was I was going through it. But you know, when you think about 2018, um, when the scientific secrets of perfect timing, uh, that release, you know, bestseller, then four years later, you produce this book. Um, when did the idea of the power of regret first come into your mind and what sparked your desire to write this book? It came in pretty late, actually. Um, going back to children, um, actually, I think that the real catalyst was uh, my elder daughter's college graduation, which was in 2019. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of those markers for a parent in a parent's life where you're like, what? How is this even possible? You know, you look, you know, you, you, you like, how is this? This kid was just born. How could she possibly be graduated from college today? And also, perhaps even more painful, um, how can I possibly be old enough to have a kid graduated from college? Cause I'm like 27. Um, and so, um, and, and so, so that, so in that, in that moment, I started sort of reflecting and realizing that I had some mileage on me. And like anybody who looks backward, I looked backward and there was stuff I wish I hadn't done. There was stuff I didn't do that I wish I had done. There was plenty of stuff I wish that I had done differently. Um, and so I was experiencing regret. Now, I also I knew that nobody wanted to talk about regret. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I didn't want to like mention it, but I very sheepishly began talking about it with a few people. And I found that everybody wanted to talk about regret. Mm-hmm. That once I started talking about it, it opened up, it sort of opened the gate the permission gates for other people to begin talking about this. And these are very rich conversations. People reacted to this topic in ways that were unlike any other topic. And so uh, as it happens, Andy, I was actually working on a totally different book at the time. And I put that aside, did some preliminary research to see whether there's any science out there in this, um, and then wrote an entirely new book proposal, which I sent up to my very surprised editor who thought I was working on an Mm -hmm. entirely different book. Um, and so, so that's how I got into it. So, um, so this was not an idea that had been uh, germinating for a very long time at all. Mm. Um, on, in, on the contrary, this it it came to me much, um, you know, it came to me very much because of the moment that I was in. Sort of analogous to the famous line, the adage about science, especially social science, which is that you know all research is me search. And so I I think that that was the case for me here. The Power of Regret is truly an amazing book as it connects us all through the concept of regret itself and how regret is a fundamental human emotion. And in this part of the discussion, Daniel shares the four core regrets that humans have based on his research and he also gives us a snapshot into each of these regrets and the human needs that are revealed through each regret as you listen to these regrets maybe take a pause and reflect on your own life and the potential regrets you may have based on each of these four areas here's daniel now speaking about the four core regrets that he built this book around And the book covers four core regrets, uh, foundation, boldness, moral connection. But can you give us just a snapshot, a tiny snapshot into each of those and how they work in our lives? 
Foundation regrets. These are about small decisions we make early that have bad consequences later. So a classic example is I spent too much and saved too little, and now I'm broke. Um, I um, I, I didn't exercise and eat right, and now I'm unhe- I'm in- woefully unhealthy. So um, that's foundation regrets. Bullion's regrets are uh, I was at a juncture in my life where I had a chance to either to play it safe or to take a chance, and I didn't take the chance, and now I regret it. So this is everything from not traveling to um, not asking somebody out on a date, to not speaking up, to not starting a business. Basically, if only I'd taken the chance. Uh, Moral regrets are, um, if only I'd done the right thing. So people who bullied, who cheated, um, um, most of us, when we do those kinds of things, end up regretting it. And these regrets are actually quite painful to people. They're the smallest category, but but mm-hmm. very quite quite painful to people. And then finally, our connection regrets, which are about relationships. Um, tip, not only romantic relationships, in fact, mostly not romantic relationships, but relationships, because most of the romantic relationship regrets are about, I married the wrong person mm-hmm. or I, you know, I had a terrible romantic relationship and I knew it at the time and I didn't get out soon enough. Um, but, but the, um, but the larger category are these broader relationship regrets that are about relationships that were intact or should have been intact and that come apart, usually just sort of drift apart and you want to reach out but you feel awkward about it and mm-hmm. you think the other side is not going to care. So you don't. And then the drift widens and then sometimes it's too late. And so yeah, uh, with remarkable uh, universality all over the world, these are the regrets that people seem to have. Yeah. And you, you share those stories, you sprinkle those stories throughout and they, they continue throughout the book. And, and uh, a couple of them are about uh, the, those connection regrets. And yeah, on, on page 50, there's a table that really summarizes uh, the human need that is revealed through each regret. And what I want to read to you is just a short snippet, but you say, so foundational gr- regrets reveal our need for stability. Boldness yeah. reveals our need for growth. Moral reveals our needs for goodness. And lastly, connection reveals our needs for love. So mm-hmm. can you just share uh, or say more about how the understanding of what we regret the most allows us insight into what we value the most. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've already said it pretty well, Andy. I mean, yeah. essentially that regret offer operates as a reverse image and a photographic negative for people who remember photographic negative, but a, a reverse image of what people want out of life. Um, because when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. Like regret clarifies what we value. And, and let me let me just go uh, one notch deeper on that if you think about you know i'll make it personal it's like uh or you know if you, if you think anybody who's listening to this um yesterday you made a lot of decisions and you took a lot of actions and most of them you don't even remember today okay <laughs> like we we do things we decide we take action we do things that we don't remember the next day let alone the next week let alone the next month right and yet there are some things that we do or didn't do where not only that from years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, not only do we remember them, but they make us feel bad. That's a very strong signal. That's telling us something. And that's the thing about regret. Regret clarifies what we value. So if I have regrets about, you know, I'll give you one of my big regrets that I I think I've more or less worked out is that when I was younger, um, I was in situations where people were not being treated well. Um, I never bullied anybody, but I was in situations where people were perhaps being bullied or mistreated or being excluded or left out or, you know, um, not being treated fairly, not being treated right. I saw it. I -hmm. knew at the time it was wrong and I didn't do anything. And that's bugged me for years. All right. So. What so? What can I do with that? I can say, "Oh, no regrets. Ignore it. It's in the past. Can't do anything about it." Or I can say, "Oh my God, I'm the I'm a horrible human being. I'm the worst person in the world." Or I can say, "Whoa, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, this is bugging me. That's a strong signal. What it's telling me, in its sort of upside down way, is that wow, you value kindness more than you might realize." Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. And this is telling me, Hey, you value kindness more than you might realize. And that this is a clarification and it's instruction 
on how to do better in the future. As there wasn't enough time to cover each of the chapters in this book, I felt that the most valuable chapter to discuss is chapter 13 from the book. The chapter is called Disclosure, Compassion, and Distance. And in this part of our conversation, Daniel shares research-backed strategies that you can apply immediately in your own life, not only to better understand regrets you might have, but also the positive benefits that applying these strategies can have in our life through the lenses of emotional, social, and physical well-being. I found this chapter to be highly useful and feel that every one of you listening to this, no matter where you are, could greatly benefit from hearing more about these strategies. I really hope you find value in this part of our discussion, so let's jump into it now. So it's taking that, and that's what you do in chapter 13, and I think chapter 13 is the most powerful, well, for me, because it it dives right into strategies that I can immediately yeah. do and apply, and that's disclosure, compassion, and distance. And what I want to share with you quickly, um, just to allow you to uh, share the three-step process, um, before that, I just want to share a quote from Dr. Jim Lair. Um, Dr. Jim, are you familiar with Dr. Jim Lehrer's work, uh, The Power of Story, um, Leading with Integrity? No. He was on my podcast a few years ago, and then he mentioned James Pennebaker's work and how yeah. James Pennebaker's work, University of Texas social psychologist, yeah. uh, how his work uh, really impacted his own journey. And what um, Jim shared, uh, he was on the Tim Ferriss podcast as well. I know you were on the Tim Ferriss podcast, but what Jim shared was this quote that says, the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears. How mm. well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what mm. determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller, and the stories we tell ourselves create our reality. And he talks about this idea that you mentioned in the book is we would never want uh, what we're thinking in our head broadcasted publicly because we're so harsh on ourselves, right? Absolutely. So this is a nice segue into the last part of our conversation uh, where you can share the the three-step process. Just give the listeners uh, this idea of self-disclosure, self-compassion. Well, when we, so, when we, so, so let's talk about that self-talk. You know, when we make mistakes, yeah. when we screw up, we talk to ourselves in our head exactly as you say. And, um, and that self-talk exactly as you say is often very, very harsh. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, we have this lacerating self-criticism, lacerating mean-spirited self-talk. And, uh, what the evidence tells pretty clearly is don't do that. Um, it is no, <laughs> there's no performance enhancing effect. It really doesn't help you at all. What, what mm -hmm. helps you more is it's sort of counterintuitive, which is, which, which is self-compassion. Uh, which is the work of another University of Texas uh, researcher, Kristen Neff. Uh, and basically what it says is treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize your mistakes are part of the human condition. Um, and uh, recognize that these things are a moment in your life, not the full measure of your life. Um, you do that. Then uh, there's a, a strong case to be made for disclosure. Um, James Pennebaker's work um, um, has shown that, um, I think pretty powerfully, that disclosure uh, writing about our negative emotions, talking about our negative emotions. It's a form of unburdening. Um, it is a form of sense-making because it takes these abstract emotions and makes them concrete. Uh, and so, and then the other thing you have to do is, you know, we, we, you can you can treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You can convert them into language to make them less fearsome. Uh, and then you have to draw a lesson from it. Um, and uh, the way we draw a lesson from it is often taking a step back. Uh, we're human beings are pretty good problem solvers. We're pretty bad problem solvers when it comes to our own problems. So we have to take a step back and look at our, you know, our our own problems from 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 a distance. And so even things it sounds weird, talking to yourself in the third person. Mm -hmm. What should you do? What should Dan? Well, you know, what should Dan do? Uh, asking yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do in this situation? Asking myself, asking if you're in a you know, position of, you know, of leadership. If I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do? If, if you're a teacher, if I were replaced tomorrow, what would my successor do? 
um, and those kinds of things allow us to normalize regret, um, to talk about it openly, and to draw lessons from it that can power us into the future. And what we know, again, just to be clear, is that we have evidence, again, from social psychology that if we treat our regrets properly, again, not ignoring, not wallowing, it can help us become clearer thinkers. It can help us avoid cognitive biases. It can help us become better problem solvers. It can help us become better negotiators. It can help us become better strategists. It can help us find more meaning in life. Yeah, and that's and to understand for the listeners that this is a buildable skill. This is not something you're born with the ability, ability to do or not, right? Great. It's a hugely important point. Um, that is, even though regret is part of our cognitive machinery, I don't think that we've been taught well enough how to deal with it. And so, and, and so, um, and I think that's partly cultural, um, because especially here in America, uh, we're over-indexed on positivity. We've been, we've been, we've been told that we should be positive all the time and never be negative. We should look forward all the time and never look back. And that's bad advice. I mean, positive emotions, we want to have a lot of positive emotions, lots and lots. They should outnumber negative emotions by a wide margin. But we shouldn't banish negative emotions. Negative emotions are instructive. And this negative emotion, regret, is, I think, our most instructive and our most transformative, if we treat it right. Right. Yeah. And you outlined this so well in the book. And So I must admit that interviewing Daniel was a wonderful experience for me and an amazing New Year's gift for me and I really do hope it's a new year's gift for you too and that you can find a lot of value in my discussion with Daniel uh, as a longtime fan of his work I feel honored to have spent time with him he was very gracious and I'm grateful that he was really engaged in the conversation in the last part of our discussion Daniel shares where you can find his work as well the gift within himself that he is most proud of having shared with the world through his work. If you found value in my discussion with Daniel Pink, please share this episode on social media and with those who you feel will benefit from listening to it. I would really appreciate the support in helping this episode reach as many people as possible, so thank you in advance. And finally, if you haven't read The Power of Regret, please get your hands on a hard copy of the book or listen to it on Audible. I promise that you will not be disappointed. And with that, a very happy 2023 to all of you out there. And may 2023 bring you much joy, happiness, fulfillment, and purpose in your life. Thanks for listening to my episode with Daniel Pink. And let's now jump into the last part of our chat. Thank you very much. Um, just to segue into the last uh, question, so um, we covered the book, and I'm going to put everything in the show notes. But uh, in closing, um, Denzel Washington gave a great commencement speech that I I listened to and I took notes to, and and there was a a great quote, <clears throat> and what he was sharing with the audience was uh, this idea that we all, uh, as we talked about earlier in the episode, we have strengths, right? We have gifts. Yeah. And he says, some of you have the gift of patience, of kindness mm. and love or creativity. Mm. Some of you have the gift of long suffering or compassion, mm. but you have to mm. know what your gift is and what you're mm. going to do with that gift to make a difference in the world. So if we were to project forward to the end of your life, which is hopefully many decades away, and you were, to look, yeah, and you were to look back on everything you had done and accomplished, uh, what gift of yours will you have been most proud of giving the world. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. I think that maybe something like he, he clarified that is when I look out into the world, it didn't make sense. It seemed really murky and hazy, but pink helped me see it more clearly. And when I saw it more clearly, I was able to do things differently. Yes, great, beautiful. Um, 
Daniel, I really want to thank you for your time. And, and obviously, it's easy to just punch your name into Google. But um, can you share uh, your website with people? And uh, there's also the Pink Cast, which is amazing, by the way. Hey, thanks. Yeah. So um, the- it, you can find the Pink Cast and all other things Pink at DanielPink.com, D A N I E L P I N K.com, or even DanPink.com, D A N P I N K.com. And for the listeners, when you're making your morning coffee, tune into a pink cast because they're 90 seconds <laughs> or two minutes, right? There's no yeah, more than yeah. two minutes and, and it's a great insight for each day. So, uh, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. It was an honor to have you on the show. Thanks, Andy, for having me. Thanks for uh, being a teacher and thanks for uh, helping students make their way through the IB. It's uh, You're doing transformative work. Thank you. I'm just going to close out the show. Everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Daniel Pink, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.